Hello, listeners. Well, here we are now being broadcast into your ears from a whole new hub, so to speak. As of today, we're part of Lit Hub Radio, and I think largely you'll find that nothing has changed. But Brooke, for us, it means broader distribution and reaching new listeners, which we're always happy about. Yeah, and listeners might hear a little more advertising, not a lot, but keep that in mind uh, because when you hear ads, it's also how podcasts can stay afloat. Yeah, I try to keep that in mind when I fast forward through ads, and we know you wouldn't fast forward <laughs> through our ads, of course. I have to say, it's okay if you need to. Um, but also of note is that today is our 200th episode. So congratulations, Grant. Mm -hmm. uh, congratulations to us and to Right Minded on these two milestones we're acknowledging today. Yeah, and we have a very special guest, Linda Holmes from Pop Culture Happy Hour on NPR, who's here to help us mark this week as a very special one. Thanks, everyone, and on to this week's show. Hello, questers, shapeshifters, story changers, and morphinistas. I am Grant Faulkner, executive director of NaNoWriMo, and a person who has changed shapes more than a few times in my life. I'm with Brooke Warner, publisher of She Writes Press, who is also a shapeshifter. And Brooke, the reason I'm focused on shapeshifting today is I'm intrigued by our guest, Linda Holmes' variety of identities, especially professional identities in her life. She went from going to law school in Portland to being a lawyer in Minnesota, to being a pop culture blogger in New York City, to being a radio and podcast host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, to being a best-selling novelist, and, and probably more that I don't know about. And I'm fascinated by people who make dramatic changes in their lives, whether they will those changes or are just open to opportunities that present themselves or literally fall into them. And I think it's especially interesting for writers because I talk to so many people and, and usually older people who tell me they're not a writer or they're not a creative person. Or I talk to people who have decided that they're, you know, just that one thing they studied in school. And so they're, they're just not so open to other possibilities of, of being something else in life. So, Brooke, I was wondering if you could tell about a dramatic change or two in your life and tell us how you made that change. And I bet it will inspire our listeners. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think the most dramatic one is the one I've shared on the show before, of course, which is the leap to leave Seal Press to start She Writes Press. And mostly that's because Seal Press was literally a dream job. And that just gives it a lot more potency in some ways. I was a senior acquisitions editor at one of the most beloved presses in the country. And it's just not the kind of job you leave. And so doing it took a lot of courage and a true leap of faith to become a publisher um, and not just a publisher, but a publisher of a press that was doing something very unconventional. So that was certainly a big one. And you know, and yeah, I just always knew that it was the right thing. So when you ask, you know, like how, I think there's a lot of things that were just guided by an, an inner knowing, even though it does feel really challenging or scary. Uh, and then the other one that I'll share is more personal, because when I think about other comparable big things uh, that are on par with Seal to She Writes is uh, falling in love with my ex-wife, which was switching teams, so to speak. <laughs> uh, you know, and that was a similar no looking back kind of experience that I know a lot of people can relate to, whether it's their sexuality or a religious conversion or just an ideology shift, whatever it might be. Uh, a moment when you're like, oh, this is more me, you know, that I'm comfortable in this space. And it, it's funny because it is shape shifting in a way, but when you shape shift 
shift into a version of yourself that feels more authentically you, whether that's career or personal, I just, it's obviously always something to celebrate. So uh, I'd love to turn the same question back to you, Grant. Yeah. You know, one, one that comes to mind, I like the the phrase you use, I think it was inner knowing or this kind of just this mystical sense of, of what's right. And I'll tell one story that when I was uh, younger, and a lot of people don't know this about me. I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not, but I literally had almost a decade. It was like seven years of just horrible carpal tunnel, repetitive stress injury. And I, there were points where I could barely hold a book without a lot of pain. Um, I certainly couldn't uh, use a typewriter or computer. I had to use this uh, very primitive version of the dictation software we know now that works very well, but it didn't back then. And I was literally living in in fear because I didn't know how I was going to make a living um, and I couldn't write fiction at all. So I was really, you know, uh, really frustrated by not having a creative outlet. And anyway, like I, I was um, I one of the jobs I came up with a, a non typing job was to become a teacher. And uh, before going back to school to get a teaching certificate, I decided I was going to research uh, what that involved. And I called various school districts to see if I could talk to someone about the possibility of being an English teacher. And I inadvertently got the response, uh, can you teach chemistry? <laughs> and <laughs> and so uh, I couldn't teach chemistry. I knew that I could uh, fail chemistry very well, but I could not teach it. Um, and I mentioned this to my physical therapist, who was very mystical. And she was just like, well, you know, the doors aren't opening for you in that direction. So maybe you should consider something else. And Nothing against being an English teacher, but I think in the end that was right. I didn't really want it. So I think if the doors aren't opening for you for a change, you actually have to really be determined to open them. And if you don't have that will or determination, then it tells you something about yourself. And so it's less mystical, but that's just a kind of test point. Um, and then the other story is happening to me now. Uh, I, I love this uh, Jerry Seinfeld quote that, what did, what did he say? He said, sometimes it's, it's best to go into endeavors not knowing anything <laughs> about them because, you know, not being an expert, because that gives you a, a type of boldness or a type of perspective that the other people don't have. He says it much better than that. But I was recently invited to be on a, a team of producers of all things to launch a reality TV show. We hope uh, we're in the process of working on that and it's about writing and publishing and I won't go into the details, but I just, you know, never imagined myself anywhere near uh, doing anything like this. Um, and in fact, all of us on the team aren't, or most of us on the team aren't well-versed or really versed in, in television production at all, but we're jumping in and we're learning and we each bring different skills to the endeavor. And I'm super excited by it in all respects, you know, the creative side and the business side. And I, I offer this because I'm actually on the old side of branching out my career, but this is, you know, rejuvenated every part of my life. I love the newness and the gamble of it and the learning and the new people in my life. And I love thinking of storytelling in a different realm and how the story has to play visually on the screen, not on the page. Um, and I just wanted to impart this because I recommend embracing new things, uh, large or small, and perhaps especially when you're on the, the older side of things. Yeah, I love that so much, Grant, because I know a tiny bit about what that endeavor is, and I'm super excited for you. Uh, and I, I know you're a collector of stories, um, so I just wanted to turn this question to some of the stories you've collected about people who have switched streams later in life. You know, Do you have a story of someone who jumped into an endeavor they knew nothing about, like Jerry Seinfeld said, or were untrained for, and then you know the rest is history? Yeah, I mean, I, um, just 
off the top of my head, when I was younger, I remember reading about the actor Danny Aiello, uh, who was in a lot of films uh, back then. And I remember reading that he didn't start acting until he was in his 50s or well in his 50s. And that's when I was young enough not to know really what that involved. But it did make an impression on me about how it's never too late, really. If you really want to be an actor, why not do it in your 50s? And I've also just been inspired by so many people we've had on this show um, who've, who've become late life writers. And, and I'm thinking especially of Alko Joshi, uh, who wrote her first novel, The Hen Artist, which is a best-selling novel. And, and she wrote it in her 50s, I believe, after a long career in advertising. So yeah, I think it's, it's just easy to not see the possibilities in your life. And so I just want to offer as many uh, stories like that as, as possible. And, you know, I think in the end, it's about realizing the multitude of selves you contain, you know, to quote Walt Whitman, I think that sometimes people lock themselves into an identity or a career because they feel, you know, imposter syndrome if they stray from that. And, and this especially goes for writing. You know, people tell themselves, I'm not a writer. Um, you know, they might say I'm an insurance salesperson or a doctor or a teacher. Um, so they don't, you know, embrace that mighty and of life that you can be an insurance salesperson and a writer and a weekend tango dancer and an aspiring stand-up comic. And I mentioned this Picasso quote many times, but it's worth remembering. He said, we're all born artists. The challenge is how to be an artist as we grow up. And, and that challenge is really about being open to change and to embracing your inner imposter because we're all imposters in a way. Or, you know, sometimes, I don't know, maybe that's too easy of a solution. I, I, I just heard the comedian Jenny Slater talking about her performance anxiety. And she said that the worst thing anyone can tell her is to just be confident, especially if a guy tells her that. <laughs> so I hope I'm not that guy. I hope I'm not oversimplifying things and say, just do it. <laughs> so what advice do you have, Brooke, for people doing something dramatically differently? later in life and dealing with a new self that doesn't feel like their old self or one that makes them feel like an imposter? Should they just be confident? Yeah. I mean, it sounds simple, but yes. Um, I, I'm thinking of Cesaria Evora. I fell in love with her actually in 1999 when I was doing a year abroad and she'd had her first commercial success as a singer in 1988 and then became kind of a megastar in 1992 with her album Miss Perfumado. Um, she was an actress before that. She was a mother. She'd had many lives. Uh, and, and she was, you know, trying to be a singer also. Uh, but I just think these, uh, you know, we all, of course, are thinking about these like later in life things, but those invariably entail these shape-shifting stories that we're circling today. I was thinking about how Joan Didion famously said, I've already lost touch with a couple of people I used to be. Uh, and I just love that quote because, of course, the older you get, the more that quote will resonate. You know, and sometimes I think about my life in my 20s and I can't even rem remember or recognize the person I was then. But it's this beautiful evolution that we get to have if we're lucky enough, you know, to inhabit different skins and to grow and to change and to keep becoming. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you're asking, is it as simple as just do it? You know, maybe it's not just do it as much as just accept, allow, release. You know, there's this idea of surrendering into whatever this next thing is going to be, which also sounds simple, but you know, yeah, one foot in front of the next. And I do think we always want to sort of solve it and have it figured out. But of course, life just keeps on getting lived. And then there's a direction that presents itself. And then you either take it or you don't. So sometimes I think it's just about slowing down enough to, to allow to unfold what will. Yeah. 
shape-shifting as a lifestyle. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think we should write a book on it. And I say that in part because I think there's something about getting older where you realize there were all these different possibilities within you, but you just didn't, you know, possibilities that you didn't recognize when you were younger, but you you just didn't have the courage or the wherewithal or the, you know, whatever it is to enact them. And that, uh, you know, Joan Didion quote, I love that. It's so poignant and true because our past selves can seem like long ago friends, but at the same time, there are so many selves within us uh, to get in touch with and be friends with. Yeah. And we're going to hear from Linda Holmes momentarily. And her book is rife with life changes in the shifting landscapes of self. Uh, and I'm super excited to hear what Linda has to say after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Linda Holmes, who is many things. She's perhaps best known as the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, but she's also a novelist, culture critic, Twitter liker, Twitter fear, former lawyer, one-time college a cappella singer, occasional bread maker, and photography dabbler. She also has a dog named Brian, who we might hear from in this podcast. Uh, Brian <laughs> was originally rescued in Spain and has his own Instagram account at at Primo Dog Content. So follow uh, Brian on Instagram. Her second novel, Flying Solo, just came out. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much. I first heard about you as a novelist when you tweeted that your first novel, Evie Drake Starts Over, started out as a NaNoWriMo project. And you also did something with it that we advise writers uh, to do at NaNoWriMo. You told others that you were writing a novel. Yes. But you didn't just tell a few friends. You announced you were going to write a novel on the New Year's Resolution show on Pop Culture Happy Hour. So that's like really true and intense accountability. <laughs> that is right. That's right. And those things happened far apart because it was a um, it was a NaNoWriMo project in uh, 2012, but um, my apartment flooded a few days into the month, and it was not possible to keep up anything except moving back and forth to different places while they fixed my apartment. So I put it down that year and didn't pick it up again. Uh, I mean, I picked it up and put it down from time to time, but really picked it up late in 2016. So it was our um, January 2017 New Year's resolutions show when I announced to all who cared to listen that I was going to finish that manuscript, whether or not anybody ever read it besides me. Yeah, well, that's a great accountability technique, and you took it to new heights. But my question is, did you approach your new novel, Flying Solo, in the same way? And, and, and I'm curious also, what did you learn from your first novel that you applied to this one? Yeah, I couldn't really approach it in the same way because... It was very hard for me to figure out what the right project was to do during pandemic isolation, sort of. And I wrote this book essentially throughout most of 2021. And I had to leave myself a lot of room to try different ideas. You know, second books are notoriously hard because it's notoriously hard to 
figure out, do you want it to be similar to the first book? Do you want it to be different from the first book? So it was a really different process. It wasn't really until I kind of locked into, you know, this book after a few false starts with other things. In terms of what I learned from the first book, you know, I had not studied really fiction writing academically. I was mostly somebody who had just read a lot. So there were things about structure, about pacing, basic things like POV and that kind of stuff that I just was not, I did not have mastery of. And I think it was much easier for me with this book to understand, you know, it sounds obvious, but kind of understand that you need to know what every scene is is for and why you need it and what it's doing. And this one also had to be plotted out a little bit more in advance because it's a little more plotty than Evie was. So this one has a little bit more of a kind of a mystery plot that needs a little more kind of making sure that all the pieces are going to ultimately fit together. So it was a little bit different. So while you were writing Flying Solo, you were also hanging out at home a lot watching Antiques Roadshow, from what I understand, which is about... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of stories about beloved objects. So I'd love to hear more about the genesis of the novel and how the being in the pandemic and specifically Antiques Roadshow sparked ideas for it. (laughs) Yeah. So Antiques Roadshow is one of the shows that I turned to after, you know, early pandemic, it was sort of, I'm going to watch all the really like great current shows that I have not caught up on. And so I did a lot of that. And then I sort of felt like I had caught up on most of the things that I wanted to catch up on. And so then I kind of turned to finding shows that I could just watch a lot of and enjoy a lot of and and kind of have as company. And one of them was Antiques Roadshow, which um, if you happen to have the right kind of subscriptions to streaming, whatever, um, you can find a lot of Antiques Roadshow. And so I was watching a lot of that. And I it became clear to me that, you know, these these beloved objects have wonderful stories and above and beyond the idea of whether or not something is valuable in terms of money. There's a whole question of how it came to be where it is and how ownership of it passed. And a lot of those stories were just completely fascinating to me. So I started to put together this idea of writing a story about um, someone who finds a, a kind of a treasure of some kind in the home of someone who has died. And I couldn't figure out exactly what object I wanted it to be. So I got in touch with a friend of mine who's very smart about antiques and goes to the flea market all the time and explained kind of, I want the object to sort of feel like this. And, you know, I don't want it to be art and I don't want it to be jewelry, but I want it to be beautiful. But I also want it to be like a kind of a a thing that a real ordinary person might make. Um, and he said duck decoys. And that is really how the this specificity of this plot came into being. It was it was really an assist from uh, my friend, Jesse Thorne. Huh. Well, you recently tweeted, I thought I would never write one, meaning novel. Then I was afraid I would never write another one. It's like the one good thing about imposter syndrome. You get to be surprised by what is possible. And it's true. <laughs> I love that take on imposter syndrome. And we talk a lot about imposter syndrome on this show and the many forms that it takes. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, I think sometimes people think that once you've done something and succeeded in it, that imposter syndrome just evaporates and goes away. And so I'm curious why imposter syndrome is still something you deal with. Oh, I mean, because imposter syndrome is not really logical. And also because it's impossible to get 
objective perspective on your own life and on your own work. So for me, you know, what I mean when I say that in some ways is that I still don't really think of myself as a, as a real writer. I, I still think of myself as kind of like somebody who happened to write a book. And I think the, the difficulty in getting from book one to book two was partly that because the first book had done pretty well, it had been like very kindly received. Then when you're trying to write another one, you have that feeling of like, am I ever going to be able to do this again? Or am I just one of those people who have one good book in them and then they never can do it again? And I felt like I was facing another entire round of proving myself to myself in some ways, because I really didn't want to just write that book and then say, well, that was fun. You know, uh, I always wanted to do that and now it's over. But writing a second one was really, really challenging. And it really put me in the position of trying to figure out whether I could, you know, without the utter lack of pressure that comes from writing a first book, which it doesn't really matter if it never happens and it doesn't really matter if you never finish it. Under the pressure of like, yes, I want to write this. This is something that I do now. Could I actually finish one? And so it was a really interesting emotional challenge on top of the fact that, of course, I was locked in my house. I wasn't around my friends. You know, for me, it was a very difficult time to be writing. I think a lot of us hoped it would be a great time for writing. Mm -hmm. It was not for me at all. Um, the lack of contact with other people to kind of bump into and have contact with really um, threw me off. Yeah, we've heard a lot of that uh, for sure. You know, before you came on, Grant and I were talking about the shifting nature of self and how bold it is to remake yourself in life. And I'm very impressed by the fact that you became a novelist in midlife, but even more impressed by what was going on for you before that. And I just wanted to take readers on a little walk that like over a very short period of time, you were working for a while at the Minnesota legislature, and then you began writing about television and film in your free time for sites like television without pity and vulture.com. And then you left your legal job and moved to New York City, and you started writing uh, and doing critical writing, criticism. Then one year later, you were hired uh, over at NPR for Pop Culture Happy Hour. So that's a lot in a very short period of time. And I was just curious if you could talk about the pros and cons of that, I guess. Like on the one hand, it seems like we pop around and there's a sort of sentiment in this culture that that's problematic. And on the other hand, I think there's a lot of expansiveness that happens when you follow your dreams. And so what was it like for you, that journey? Well, you know, it took longer than it sounds like it took in some ways, because I was freelancing for quite a number of years while I was still an attorney. So I was kind of building up this um, side line in writing. So what really happened is I got to the point where I just wanted to write more than I wanted to do anything else. I wanted to write um, more than I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was fortunately able to get a job in New York where I could just write and edit um, for Television Without Pity, where I loved the people. And, you know, even though I didn't stay in that job for very long, uh, it was an opportunity to to kind of really change my life. And I think, you know, for me, the 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 opportunity to really do what I wanted to do to move around quite a bit, 
to take a lot of risks. I mean, this all happened when I was in my late 30s. So, you know, I was already pretty well settled uh, when this kind of shift happened. And so, you know, we started Pop Culture Happy Hour the year that I turned 40. And, you know, so you just never know. You just kind of <laughs> have to, you just kind of have to follow the the road. Um, and if you're very, very lucky as I was, then, you know, it it, it winds up in, in very unexpected places. Um, and that's just the way things have gone for me. I love the, you just never know approach to life. sounds like it's taken you really interesting places. And now that you've published two novels, I'm just kind of curious how, how, or if uh, writing and publishing your own work has changed your critiques of others' works. And then conversely, you know, is thinking about pop culture so critically changed the way you create and write fiction? Yeah. I mean, I think there are two questions there, right? One is, one is, is it different to be a critic when you've had your own work out there? And mm -hmm. the thing is, even when you're a critic or you're a recapper or whatever, you get plenty of feedback about your work. So, you know, I've been dealing with positive and negative responses to my work um, ever since I started freelancing about TV. So that's not a new thing. And I don't think it has particularly changed. You know, I'm, I'm pretty careful how much I subject myself to just whatever feedback. I, I like good and interesting feedback, um, of which there's lots. But the other, going the other way in terms of how having been a critic affects the way that I write fiction, I think that both of my books have roots in wanting to write something different from some of the things that I always took in as a critic. Um, you know, Evie is really a book that's partly about uh, the dangers of the sort of, you know, people who save each other from terrible situations, that kind of setup, the, the problems with that kind of setup and the problems with rescue as a romantic trope. And Flying Solo is really partly about challenging, you know, the very common picture of the woman who kind of goes back to her small town and she discovers that, you know, this is really where life is good. And, you know, having gone to the big city and made a life for herself is not really what she wants. You know, I've read that book and seen that movie a million times. Um, so I wanted to kind of examine that. So I think the fact that I've spent a lot of time digging into what it is that I like and don't like about existing stories um, and thinking critically about that has made me more likely to write from a position of what can I challenge? What can I reshape here in my own work? Well, in closing, Linda, I'm curious uh, in the vein of sort of following the thread of what life has to offer, if there are any transitions on the horizon. And now that you've written two novels, do you think that you'll write a third? I will definitely write a third. Um, I am set up to write, uh, to write more. And uh, I definitely, I, I have had much less difficulty, you know, thinking about what direction I want to go with a third book than I did with the second book. I honestly think the second one is just the, like I said, notoriously difficult. Big transitions, you know, in some ways, I I, I hope not. I've certainly <laughs> transitioned to working at home, as many people have. Um, so I've transitioned to a very different shape of my day. But 
for the most part, I am very fortunate. I'm very happy right now with how things are going professionally. You know, I certainly in some ways wish for different things to be happening in the wider world, as I think a lot of people do. But in terms of my own direction, I feel like it's going about as well right now as I could ask. And I I don't really have any big changes planned, to tell you the truth. Well, out of curiosity, because I really appreciate what you said at the top that you had a lot of craft to learn, you know, around like the craft of fiction is at this stage in your life, would you take more writing classes or what would you recommend for someone who's, you know, a novel in or an aspiring novelist who knows they need a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I... I felt like I learned the most, you know, I have been fortunate enough that because I was actually writing novels, I got to go back and forth with a really good editor who kind of working through that in some ways is the best, I think, way to do it because that's somebody who can afford to spend a tremendous amount of time on you and your work, which is a real blessing if you do have those things to learn. Um, I, I can certainly imagine myself taking classes. I think a lot of places have, you know, some places at least have um, writing centers and writing programs where you can take classes. There are honestly a, a certain number, and I don't want to recommend, you know, I don't want to recommend a particular one because I, I can't even remember now which ones I read, but <laughs> there are books about writing fiction where I think if you're prepared to take things with a grain of salt, if they don't sound right for you, you can learn a lot about basic structural stuff and, you know, getting from point A to point B, because there are just those, like you said, those craft things where I never doubted that I knew how to write a good sentence. I was a writer. I knew how to write a good sentence. But, you know, structure and pacing and all of that stuff is just a thing where you have to kind of dig your hands into it and and learn it. And I can absolutely um, see myself doing that at some point when I don't have essentially two jobs, but yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Linda. And I'm only disappointed that we didn't get a guest appearance from Brian. I know he's behaving too well. (laughs) Thank you, Linda. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the vein of shape-shifting or the idea that old dogs can, in fact, learn new tricks, the AALA, the Association of American Literary Agents, has recently changed its code of ethics to allow agents to charge for editorial services. This is actually a major change, isn't it, Brooke? Yeah, indeed it is. Uh, you know, I'm good friends with Regina Brooks of Serendipity Literary Agency, and she's the vice president of the AALA. And we've been talking about this for years, actually, about how behind the times the AALA is or has been. So I'm actually pretty excited about this um, for them. And that's why it's today's trend. You know, the notion that agents couldn't charge authors for editorial work may have made sense 20 years ago. But in today's literary environment, 
environment and agencies can't survive, you know, if they're spending hours and hours cultivating an author, editing their manuscripts, and then not charging for any of that time. And then I've heard horror stories from agents, you know, who have spent tons of time with authors on their manuscripts, and then the authors up and go to another agency after all of that free work. So you hear a lot about how authors need to protect themselves against bad actors, but um, as it turns out, so do agents. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think, at least from what I've heard, that agents do more editing than they used to, that you just have to have a manuscript more buttoned up because editors actually don't do as much editing as they used to. Right. So the, the whole field of agenting is is changing, and it's such a strange business in, in so many ways. I mean, the agent only makes money if their author makes money, so it really is a business of strategic bets. And if you win, you can win big, but if you fail, you basically don't eat. Yeah. <laughs> and like a lot of arenas in publishing, it's also about legacy, right? So those agents who've been around forever benefit from their legacy authors who allow them to take risks. Because if you have mega bestsellers on your list and you're collecting 15% royalties for forever, that really can fuel everything else. And so then you have these younger agents or startup agencies, which you want and need in order to have this thriving ecosystem, but then they can't make it because they don't have a track record or famous authors paying the bills. So charging for editorial services in this context does make sense. It's just not the world it used to be. Yeah. So big question. Will authors still be taken advantage of? Yeah, I think it's like everything else in this industry that is quote unquote paid for, which is authors have to be savvy. They have to ask for references, interview the people who have worked with that agency. And I know this is going to sound a little cynical or rude, but there's been all this talk about predatory practices lately. And it just makes me say, look, people, you have to be more mindful. Like it is going to happen. People are going to show up at your door with snake oil, but it's your choice whether or not to turn that person away or to buy it. So there is such a thing as calling references doing due diligence. So I just think the person in the position of paying for a service needs to get the stars out of their eyes and do their freaking research. (laughs) Said like someone who wears a velvet glove over her steel fist. Good reminder, (laughs) Brooke. And uh, yeah, we're going to be here for you authors to to help you do that research and and to make sure that you don't get too many stars in your eyes. We we're going to keep some stars in your eyes, but you know, a few. Can't can't have too many stars and uh, we will be back next week. Uh, keep listening to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Keep inviting your friends to listen with you and we will see you next week.